This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I had somehow been ushered into eternity. I'd been ushered into life. I'd been ushered into love with a capital L, a mystery with a capital M. Everyone else's story was, that was a lovely, a lovely moment. You know, we got to worship the Lord. We got to have communion. But for them, it was just, it was just another, you know, it was just another day at church. And for me, it was like I had been to the mountaintop. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're happy to welcome back our guest, Carl McCollman. He's the author of Befriending Silence, the Big Book of Christian Mysticism, Christian Mystics, 108 Seers, Saints, and Sages, and Answering the Contemplative Call. He lives near Atlanta, Georgia, where he's a member of the Lay Cistercians of Our Lady of the Holy Spirit, a contemplative community under the spiritual guidance of Trappist monks. He leads workshops, and he also runs a podcast, which we'll talk about a little later in the show. Today, we're going to be talking about his recent book, Untitled teachable lessons, why wisdom can't be taught, and why that's okay. Carl McCollman, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Oh, it's great to be here, David. So in your book, Unteachable Lessons, this is different from some of your other books. You you talk in those other books about other people's mystical experiences oftentimes. Here, you're really sharing with us a little bit of your own journey, and one of the stories that you tell is a story that grounds itself in a little conference center run by the Presbyterians in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, a place called the Massanetta Conference Center. Now, I've, I've been to Massanetta. I've, I've been to a conference there, and so I know a little bit about what this place is like, but tell us a little bit about that place and how it factored into your walk as a person of faith. Well, I'm from Virginia. I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, and I was a Lutheran. My, my faith of origin is Lutheranism. My parents were very, you know, active, church-going Lutherans. And so even though Massanetta is a Presbyterian conference center, you know, every now and then the Lutherans would kind of take it over. And even from, I guess, sixth or seventh grade, we would go up there for one week each summer. There would be a summer assembly for the Lutheran Synod. So Massanetta was a very special place to me. It was church camp. You know, it was it was the church camp experience I had as a child. Then the story that I tell in the book goes to an event that actually took place in February. There used to be a weekend event called Winter Celebration. It was a little different experience. In the summer, of course, at Massanetta, you have canoeing and you have hiking, you know, outdoor sports, those kinds of things, or swimming pool. And all of that is just not available in the winter months. It's, you know, Massanet is in the Shenandoah Valley. You know, it, it does snow there. It does get cold. So when I went there for this, this winter event, there was, I don't know, 100 or 200 high school youth from all over the state of Virginia, you know, plus the adult counselors and so forth. But we were all kind of cooped up in this hotel. So it was, it was a, a more intensive 
kind of an experience and really, you know, a, a time for faith sharing and faith development. And I went there, you know, I was a, I was a sophomore in high school, so I was probably about 16 years old. To be perfectly candid, I was more interested in girls than in God at that point in my journey. But that weekend, really, it really moved me. It really kind of touched me about how faith can be relevant in our lives. And of course, the big moment, which is what I talk about in my book, the big moment was Saturday evening when we had a communion service. This was back in the 1970s, okay? So it's it's that kind of folk music, you know, they'll know we are Christians by our love, kumbaya kind of kind of spirituality. But in the midst of that, how do you put this into words? It's like trying to put something into words that you cannot put into words. So I'm going to just muddle through here, and I beg, you know, your your indulgence. But I essentially had some sort of an encounter with mystery with a capital M, or should I say with love with a capital L. You know, and I could I could kind of toss off, oh, you know, I had some sort of an experience of God. Well, number one, I really don't like the word experience. And number two, I think oftentimes, you know, God comes to us as profound mystery. <laughs> but it was. It was just this, this moment of mystery in, the, in my life, but this, this sense of being loved, this sense of being in love. And, and that's a pun there, like being in love, like falling in love, but also like being immersed in love. And there was also this kind of experience of light, this kind of luminosity. And it, it, again, you know, as I talk, I feel like this sounds corny, this sounds, you know, glib. But it was, it was this kind of embodied moment where there was more going on than just the light in the room. There was just kind of inner luminosity that for some reason I was just invited into. You know, and uh, let, me, let me say a few things, a few disclaimers. There were no chemicals. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything to alter my state of consciousness. There, um, no, no kind of distress, nothing that left me, you know, anxious or unsettled, except that after this, this kind of experience of love, this kind of sense of being loved in this very profound way, when I shared that with some friends, their response was all, yeah, you know, that was nice. I had just somehow been ushered into eternity. I'd been ushered into light. I'd been ushered into love with a capital L, a mystery with a capital M. Everyone else's story was, well, that was a lovely, a lovely moment. You know, we got to worship the Lord. We got to have communion. You know, so, so nobody had a bad experience. But for them, it was, just, it was just another, you know, it was just another day at church. And for me, it was like... I had been to the mountaintop. But then in your book, you, you talk about how you go on to begin to try and chase that experience. You, you want every encounter of the Eucharist to be that same kind of mountaintop experience. Yes. In fact, my buddy, my podcast co-host, Kevin Johnson, he talks about the experience trap. And I fell right into the experience trap where I had this experience of God and I wanted more of the experience of God. So it's like, instead of chasing after God, I was chasing after the experience of God. And what I found, you know, the, the lesson I learned was that God becomes very shy and very elusive. 
in, in those kinds of circumstances. And it took me, I guess, a while to learn that sometimes we are invited into a faith that is, is shaped by, again, mystery. The classical language, darkness, unknowing, the dark night of the soul, I think the divine darkness, you hear, you hear words like that. Even the word mysticism, you know, which is in some ways a terrible word. But what it really means is stepping into that which is hidden, into that which can't be put into words. That, I think, was my initiation as a teenager. Now, I, I want to say something. I'm not here to say that there's anything special about what happened to me. I, I have a friend who is a, he's a licensed professional counselor. He's been working with, you know, with clients for many, many years now. He also happens to be a Disciples of Christ minister. When I told him that story, his response was, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of adolescents have a moment like this, this moment where it's like their heart opens up, their, you know, their mind, if you will, their you know, this, just this sense of touching eternity or touching the face of God. So, you know, I certainly don't have any sense that I'm special or that I've been, you know, given some sort of a special call. I think I was given a gift for whatever reason. And don't ask me to explain what that reason was. Other than 40-some-odd years later, I can say that, that I fell in love with love that night, and it has shaped who I am ever since. Well, and a couple of things about this. There's a, a, a passage from your book, Unteachable Lessons, that had just stuck with me. You talk about experiences with God being like candy. They're sweet and delicious, but they're not particularly nurturing. And I think that some of my listeners might bristle a little bit at that. Well, I, I want to have an experience with God. But you're talking about not the encounter with the divine, but rather chasing that moment, chasing that high almost. Is, am I hearing you correctly in that phrase? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. You know, I, I you mentioned that I have a relationship with a Trappist monastery here near Atlanta where I live. And, you know, the Trappist monks have been amazing spiritual mentors for me, you know, for many years now. And I remember speaking with one monk, and he said, you know, I have been a monk for 60 years, and I've never had a mystical experience. But he said it without a trace of bitterness that he understood he was very much at home with the idea that God came to him in ordinary ways. God came to him through the liturgy, through the experience of prayer, the experience of worship, through having meaningful relationships, whether with his brother monks or with, you know, people from the larger community, that, you know, he found, he found God in living his life with authenticity and purpose. And, and I think that, you know, the candy, the candy experience, the mountaintop experience, yeah, of course, who wouldn't want to have some sort of a gee whiz experience of God? But I think that those of us who, for whatever reason, have those, again and again and again, certainly my experience and the experience of, if you read the great mystics, they all speak almost with this universal voice, that those kinds of you know momentary encounters with the mystery are always in service of something higher or deeper or nobler. And I think that higher, deeper, nobler thing is this learning to recognize that God, that the divine, that the mystery of the capital M, is actually met in the most ordinary and down-to-earth ways, if we can learn to just open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears to have that encounter. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Carl McCollman. He's been on the show before, but today we're talking to him about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carl McCollman, the author of many books. Today, he's talking to us about his most recent, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught, and Why That's Okay. Well, in the segment before the break, we were talking about this mystical experience that you had at the Massanetta Conference Center in Virginia when you were a teenager, and how that made you, and your phrase was, it made you fall in love with love, and I really like that phrase. But it also kind of set you on a journey. Walk us a little bit through where that quest to be in love with love kind of led you over the next decades. Oh, how much time do we have? (laughs) Um, Many, many twists and turns. Many, many twists and turns. Like I said, I was raised Lutheran. In college, I kind of had a falling away from formal religious practice, just kind of got into, you know, the life of a kind of a spiritual but not religious person. I don't know if I ever used that phrase, but that's kind of where I was, you know, reading Alan Watts and Carlos Castaneda, and, and, but also some Christian authors, Evelyn Underhill, C.S. Lewis, Morton Kelsey, people like that. Definitely kind of a spiritual seeker. So I landed in the Episcopal Church. And when I was in graduate school, I started attending the Episcopal Church, eventually was received into the Episcopal Church. At that same time, I was in Washington, D.C., I discovered the Shalem Institute, which is an institute uh, specifically oriented towards the revival of Christian contemplative practice. And so that became very, very formative for me. I began working with a spiritual director, you know, took some classes, discovered that kind of a contemplative orientation to life was very much part of my story. Work took me down to Atlanta and then up to Sewanee, Tennessee, which is where you and I met, by the way. While I was in Sewanee, I began to seriously explore alternative forms of spirituality, shamanism, goddess spirituality, pagan forms of spirituality. And that became, you know, for about a six or seven year period, that really became kind of my center of gravity. But one of the things that that taught me, kind of one of my unteachable lessons, was that even though I'm very interested in interfaith spirituality, my heart really does belong to Jesus. You know, my center of gravity is is the Christian tradition. And so when the time came for me to kind of, you know, reconnect to Christianity, I was interested in the monastic world, interested in monastic spirituality, started to hang out with the Trappists here in Georgia. I was living in Georgia at the time, and after a period of discernment, decided to become a Roman Catholic. So, um, you know, in, in this world, I've really gone deeper into the Christian contemplative tradition, the Christian mystical tradition. You can see how it's kind of a full circle. It brings me right back 
to, you know, kind of the that love affair that began that night in Massanetta over 40 years ago. In your book, Unteachable Lessons, you actually devote a chapter to this, and I believe the chapter is called something like Pagans and Druids and Buddhists, Oh My. And you really invite the reader into that conversation. I, I, it was a wonderful chapter to me. So, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I live in the Deep South, and many people in the Deep South are culturally very conservative. Obviously, many Christians are culturally very conservative. And one of the ways in which that manifests itself is that, uh, at least in my experience, there's a certain kind of segment of the Christian community that sees part of Christian identity, meaning that you really shouldn't be engaged in non-Christian spiritualities or non-Christian communities of faith unless you are actively evangelizing those persons. And so, you know, my, my experience is different, and how I see things is different from that. You know, for lack of a better term, I'm, I guess, a Vatican II Catholic. You know, the Vatican II, the, 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 the ecumenical council that happened back in the 1960s, what emerges in the Catholic world is this real kind of hermeneutic of appreciation, this real kind of recognition that Christianity can be enhanced and can be deepened by proactive and positive engagement with persons of other faiths. That has just been kind of my guiding star, and especially since my journey included this season when I was alienated from Christianity, and there are a variety of reasons why that was the case, but ultimately then drawn back. And one of the things I've learned in the 15 years since I came back to kind of Christian identity and Christian practice is that a lot of people have journeys very similar to mine. You know, now their their path instead, it might not be into paganism, but it might be into Buddhism or into Sufism or, or simply into kind of a secular way of living, various kind of New Age forms of spirituality. You know, and then, you know, but, but some people then they say, well, you know, Christian, the Christian story still matters to me. Jesus still matters to me. Christian ethics still matter to me. So they, they return to the Church. But they, it's not like they just erased the last 5, 10, 20, however many years. They come back a different person. And I think that there are some people I think that's alarming. To me, that's exciting. It's exciting to be a Christian in an age, I mean, we're the age of the Internet and in the, and, and the age of you know, jet airplanes, where the entire world is literally at our fingertips, where we can be anywhere in the world in 12 to 36 hours. We have access to the world's wisdom that no generation before us ever had. Isn't that an exciting thing? And to me, as a follower of Jesus Christ, it does not in any way threaten my relationship with Christ. In fact, if anything, it just fills me with excitement. Well, it occurs to me that I've got a wide spectrum of listeners, some of whom are evangelicals, and their impression of Catholicism is probably that it's a lot of rote prayers and high church. One of the things that interests me is that even though you came back into the Catholic Church, one of the things that attracted you was the tradition of silence the Trappists, the Cistercians. And so talk to me a little bit about that. Is there friction there, or is there a, a nice 
a nice agreement there between the kind of rituals of the church and your attraction to this silent tradition within the church. You know, the, one of the monks that I worked with for many years, he's, he's passed away now, Father Anthony DeLisi, Trappist monk here in Georgia. And Father Anthony used to say, pray as you can, not as you can't. And so there was this real recognition that there are many, many ways to pray. There are many ways to cultivate a relationship with God. And that's what prayer is. We can talk about prayer in maybe kind of a popular understanding that prayer is asking for things, you know, petition and intercession or, or confession or those kinds of things. And certainly all that is, is prayer. But, but if prayer is only me talking and God listening, that's pretty one-sided. You know, and so I think especially when you look at the great teachers of the Christian tradition, not just Catholic, I mean, really across the board, there's this kind of recognition that the point behind prayer, the gift of prayer, the treasure of prayer, is this invitation into relationship, this invitation into that, into being in love with love. That the God who is love, that's a scriptural truth, the God who is love wants a relationship with us, desires to be in a relationship with us, seeks us out. And that we are invited to respond to that that love, that initiatory love in our lives. And so, yes, there is this whole kind of liturgical tradition in the Catholic world. You can buy prayer books that have hundreds and hundreds of prayers for every possible situation. And, you know, I see that. It's, it's like if you're learning how to play a musical instrument. To me, that's like, like learning to play scales. You know, if you're, if you're an eight-year-old and you're learning piano, you've got to learn how to play your scales, and you've got to practice your scales over and over and over and over again. And that's what wrote prayer. It's learning the language of, of intimacy with God. A lot of people never get beyond that. And, and I, I don't judge that, because, again, pray as you can, not as you can't. If that's where you need to be to cultivate your relationship with God, then be there. But there are many, many people at various points in our life journey. We are called into more conversational forms of prayer. You certainly find that in the evangelical world. You know, the idea of having a conversation with God. But then this idea, you know, and in the Catholic tradition it's called mental prayer. This idea of reflecting on who God is and what it means to experience, there's that terrible word again, to experience God's presence in our lives, to experience the, the truth of the of the faith, that God is love, that God is mercy, that God is, is relationship, and that God builds community, and that God is, God's love is self-sacrificial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to, you know, to reflect on that and to make those, those kind of abstract spiritual truths, make them embodied realities in our lives. So then that's kind of the next piece of it. And then finally, you alluded to this, and I do talk about this in the book, there is this long-standing tradition that goes all the way back to the deserts of Egypt and Palestine back in the second, third, and fourth centuries of you know these amazing Christian saints, spiritual teachers, who found that by moving deeply into silence and kind of letting go, even letting go of our thoughts and our, our conceptual, discursive, you know, kind of interior chatter. Not you don't empty your mind. That's kind of a myth that's out there. You don't empty your mind just like you let it go. It's almost like you're paying more attention. It's like looking at a, at a piece of paper. I think I use this analogy in the book. It's like instead of paying attention to the ink on the page, you pay attention to the paper that the ink is printed on. You pay attention to the silence. And why? Because, well, first of all, God said, be still and know that I am God. Into that silence, into that stillness, we are given the opportunity 
to really receive God's presence in our lives. Now, I think God is present whether we are silent and still before God or not, but it's an invitation for us to recognize that divine presence, that that actually comes to us in these very, very quiet, very mysterious ways. So, you know, certainly the monks who live a very silent life, they don't, they don't take a vow of silence. It's kind of a misunderstanding. But silence is part of their culture, part of their way of living. That has certainly been their experience of prayer for centuries now. And even though I'm not a monk, it has been a tremendous privilege for me to study with monks and to pray with monks and to learn from them, and to learn the ropes of contemplative or silent prayer. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Carl McCollman about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Carl McCollman. He's been on the show before to talk about some of his other books, but today he's back to talk to us about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. One thing that rings out clearly through all your entire book, Unteachable Lessons, is the importance of relationships along the way. And there was one relationship in particular that you begin the book with. This journey to neo-paganism leads to some circumstances that make you encounter a woman who eventually becomes your wife. Her name is Fran, and Fran has a daughter. The daughter is named, was named Rhiannon. And your experience with Rhiannon has also helped to shape your journey of faith. And I'd, I'd like to take a few moments, if you're willing, to talk about that encounter with Rhiannon and how it has changed you. Oh, it's, I, I can talk your ear off about Rhiannon. Uh, certainly, you know, one of the most important relationships of my life. If, well, you know, again, my wife is in there too. <laughs> so definitely on the short list. Yeah, when I met Fran, she was a single mom. She had been married previously. So, you know, as, as Fran said, you know, if, uh, you know, if somebody wants me in their lives, it's, it's we're a package deal. I have this little girl. And I was really nervous about that. It's, it's funny, in, in the book, I compare myself to, um, to the character Charlie Babbitt in the movie Rain Man, which Tom Cruise played where Tom Cruise ends up kind of forming a relationship with an autistic brother of his. But he's kind of this narcissistic, self-involved person and doesn't really know how to be in a relationship with somebody who has special needs. And the reason why that's a significant analogy is because Rhiannon was a special needs person, too. She was born with polycystic kidney disease. She had a, a cerebral incident, a stroke, when she was only three years old and it left her paralyzed for the rest of her life. She spent the rest of her, her 29 years, so 26 of her 29 years, confined to a wheelchair. And um, when I met Fran, Rhiannon was not yet seven years old. So she was just a few weeks before her seventh birthday that I met Fran. And Fran and I just, you know, there was a lot of chemistry between us right at the beginning and, you know, just very attracted to her. And we, you know, we just were immediately good friends. And, you know, there was just this 
ease in which we fell in love. And so Rhiannon was, you know, part of our journey of getting to know each other. But Fran and I primarily spent weekends together because she was a long-distance relationship. And Rhiannon spent most of her, her weekends with her grandmother. So it really wasn't until after I got married that I entered into what it means to have a day-in, day-out relationship with a little girl who needs care. And it was difficult, and I had a hard time adjusting to it. And let's just say that, that over the next 22 years, Rhiannon taught me how to love. She taught me how to love, and then her illness led to her death. So she also taught me how to breathe. And that really was, you know, in fact, the title of the book comes from that chapter of the book. That, that chapter of the book is called Unteachable Lessons, because I think when it comes to how do we learn how to love, how do we learn how to grieve, how do we learn how to be a parent? I mean, even, even with a child that has no serious medical issues, how do we learn how to be a husband or a wife? You can't read these things out of a book. These are lessons that have to be taught through living and through relationship. It was a tremendous journey for me as your friend to be reading along with you. And I'm sure that that readers who have never met you would, would feel a similar openness and honesty in this chapter. I wonder what it was like writing that chapter and revisiting these memories. Was it painful? Did you weep as you wrote it or was it was it a more clinical experience? Well, it certainly wasn't clinical. It, it was certainly very involved. <sighs> It's funny because I don't remember weeping as I wrote it. But when we were doing the final editing, you know, my publisher is William B. Erdman's. And as I was working with the editors with Erdman's, and you know, because you're a writer, you know, they say the editor goes through it and they send the manuscript back to you and you go through it again and then you send it back and there's this kind of back and forth. And then eventually the book gets laid out, a typesetting gets laid out, and then they send it to you one last time. And at that point, you're really only just proofreading, you know, for typos or for a straight, you know, punctuation mark or a misspelled word or whatever. But I remember when I got that, that last copy of the manuscript and was reading through it, that's when I wept. That's when I really kind of, I guess I gave myself permission to just be present with the story. So, you know, so I guess before then, I was just, I was so invested in telling the story. And, and I'm, I'm just so, so honored by your comments, David, because that was my, my contract with the reader, quote unquote, that to tell the story as honestly and as authentically as I could. Because it's not necessarily a story in which I shine, you know, that I certainly do talk about my selfishness, you know, losing my temper with, you know, my child having to apologize to her. But then also, you know, just, yeah, the grace that came through that, that, um, you know, suddenly there was this kind of recognition that even in the messiness of an imperfect relationship, and let's be real, all human relationships are imperfect. You know, I think the most loving marriage still has its, its edges of struggle and of challenge. Uh, you know, and if, if natural marriage doesn't have that, that to me, if I were a therapist, I would see that as a red flag, you know. So it's, it's the nature of love that we get into the dirt. We get into, into our shadow. 
we get into pain, each other's pain, and, and the horrible recognition when we, we learn that we've actually caused the other person's pain. All of that is in the mix. You know, and, and one of the things about Rhiannon was she was a truly loving person, and she was a forgiving person. She was a kind person. And so even as I stumbled through, okay, what does this mean? to be a stepfather, and how can I do this with a measure of integrity and grace? And, 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 you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I resented the fact that, you know, she was handicapped and that requ- required so much care. I'm not proud to admit it, but it's the truth. I just plain resented it. And she loved me and forgave me through that resentment. And because of that, I was able to find in my own heart, that the resentment was not the whole story. That, you know, I love this little girl. And, and you know, especially, you know, we, I mean, long before she passed away, but certainly the last three or four years when, when she became so sick and she was in and out of the hospital and then ultimately leading to a seven-month hospice journey, that, you know, they're just, you know, at that point, by the grace of God, you know, I was able to really kind of access the tenderness that I had in my heart for this person who loved me even when I wasn't very good at loving her. You know, so that, I think there was a lot of grace in there, and it helped me to recognize that, that love doesn't have to be perfect to be loved and to be meaningful and to make a difference and to be redemptive. So I, I hope some of that came through. It definitely did, and I'm I'm very. I just want to speak on behalf of my listeners to say I'm very sorry for your loss. One of the things that you talk about in the book Unteachable Lessons is because of her stroke when she was three, her mental capacity never progressed beyond that of a ten year old. Nevertheless, you say very clearly that during her process of dying, she was deeply aware of what was going on. You also talk about the fact that she in those moments of your saying, I'm sorry, and her saying, I forgive you, she was aware of the gravity of that moment, too. And there was even a fact, you you talk about the fact that you come back a couple months later and try and apologize again, and she says, we've already done this. I've forgiven you. It, just such a beautiful moment in that story. There was just, and there was just so much grace and just so much comfort. And yes, you know, she cognitively, she was like a 10 year old. So she talked about going to be with Jesus, going to be with grandmommy, you know, spoke about her death the way a 10 year old would. But there were, you know, the, the mystery of the human, the human mind, she was also a 29 year old. And so in some ways she was very, very wise. And that certainly came through as well. And anyway, like I said, I could, I could, I could talk your ear off about her. She was an amazing, amazing person. And one of the things I talk about in the book about grief is how after she passed away, what stunned me, you know, I, I had lost both of my parents before her. I'd lost some friends. So it's not like I'd never grieved before. But with her, I had this profound sense of gratitude, just this amazing sense of how privileged I was to be her stepfather and to, you know, and to walk with her those over 20 years. What a gift it was to me to have this person in my life. So here I am crying like a baby, and yet at the same time, just wash and wash of, of gratitude coming over my heart. 
just really taught me that, that grief is a many-faceted jewel, that, that, that there's many, many dimensions to what it means to lose somebody. You know, and it's not all painful, although certainly pain is a part of the story. Putting all that in the book is really tremendous for me, and thank you for taking a moment to sort of step into that water again and share that with me and my listeners. It, it was just a profoundly moving moment for me, and I, I'm very, very sorry for your loss. Well, thank you. And all I can say is that if you ever are with a family member who suffers so much from an illness, there's, you know, yeah, we miss her. We'll always miss her. There will not be a day in which Fran and I don't miss her. But there's also a tremendous sense of she's gone home, and, and that's okay. There's an okayness about it, too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking to Carl McCollman. He's been a guest on the show before, and he's back today to talk with us about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carl McCollman. He's been a guest on the show before. Today, he's back to talk to us about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. Well, in addition to being a conference leader, a speaker, and a writer, you also have recently become the host or the co-host of a podcast. So tell us a little bit about Encountering Silence and how it came to be. Encountering Silence is the podcast that I co-host, along with, with my good friends and colleagues, Cassidy Hall and Kevin Johnson. And we are all three people that are just very much engaged with kind of Christian contemplative spirituality, you know, the recovery of, of a contemplative way of knowing, a contemplative way of doing theology, and certainly the significance of silence in the spiritual life, which um, you and I have already touched on. And we spoke about that when we talked about prayer earlier. Cassidy was the co-producer of an amazing movie. I want to give a shout-out to this movie directed by Patrick Shen. It's called In Pursuit of Silence. And it's a documentary about the importance of silence and the challenges that we are facing in our world that has become increasingly noisy, especially through technology. And the movie is a work of art. It's not always an easy movie because it really, uh, it's very honest about the problems associated with noise and, and with, with excessive sound. One of the people that was interviewed in that movie, the 
uh, Anglican theologian, spiritual writer Maggie Ross is a mentor to Kevin. And so Maggie, after she'd been interviewed by Patrick and Cassidy, she mentioned to Kevin, you need to get in touch with these people. Kevin got in touch with Cassidy, and then he and I were friends just through social media. He reached out to me and he said, you need to get to these people. So a friendship emerged really thanks to that movie, that, that wonderful movie. And so for several years, you know, Kevin and Cassie and I just were to friends. And we realized that we learned a lot from each other. I think that was the gift of the friendship. And, and you know, and, and we're, we're, we're different people. It's interesting. We're, I mean, we're all three white persons. Kevin and I are both men. Cassidy is, is, is a woman. Cassidy is queer. Kevin and I are Catholic. She's Episcopalian. You know, so we have some theological differences, but also a lot of affinity, too. Since we began the podcast, we've also discovered we're all three. We all three love poetry. So what we decided was that there needs to be a conversation kind of in the podcast world about some of the same topics that the movie In Pursuit of Silence explored. You know, what is silence? Why does silence matter? What do we need to do to cultivate silence in our lives, to cultivate silence in our communities? And I think, you know, all three of us, again, have this kind of spiritual approach to silence, but also this recognition that silence matters on more than just a spiritual level. That silence matters to us in terms of our health, in terms of psychology, in terms of education. There's a politics of silence, certainly an aesthetics of silence. So we began this podcast really as just three friends who kind of wanted to geek out together about silence. And what we very early on found out was that there are some really amazing people out there who are willing to join us in the conversation. And so so the first about the first six or seven episodes are just the three of us, and we also, from time to time, we, we, we try to have, you know, kind of an, an episode that's just the three of us. But for the most part, we also have conversation partners, and we've just had, you know, some amazing, amazing conversation partners on the podcast. We've had Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bergeau, Mary Margaret Funk, Parker Palmer, James Martin, Loretta Coleman-Brown, Therese Taylor-Stinson. You know, it's just, I mean, the list goes on and on. Carrie Newcomer, amazing folk musician. And so people come from different perspectives. But, you know, the conversation always begins with, what is your relationship with silence? How is silence a part of your journey? And then from there, you know, the conversation can go into all sorts of directions. So it's just in this, this labor of love that the three of us began. And, you know, we found that, People are responding. People, people seem to find the podcast very, very meaningful. And what I love about this is that you have just described to me and my listeners all of this intense conversation about silence. It reminds me of that old John Cage piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, where the whole point of the performance is to simply hold the silence. But it's kind of the reverse of that, where you're, you are, you're talking about the experience of silence with a a lot of words. It's an interesting twist on the whole process, isn't it? I, the only two words that, that come to mind are paradox and irony. 
And, you know, and people, you know, people tease us every now and then somebody gets online and they say, yeah, right. It's what is your podcast? 30 minutes of nothing. And we jokingly say, well, maybe that's what it should be. You know, there's an old Quaker proverb that one should only speak when one is improving upon silence. And I think if I really took that seriously, I, I, I'd be a lot less loquacious than I am. So it is a paradox. You know, it is, there's an irony in, in speaking about silence. But this goes back to kind of the, the relationship between the printed words and the page, whether we like it or not. Language is the means by which we connect, by which we tell stories, and we learn who we are, not only for one another, but even for ourselves. And so we have this paradox of speaking about silence. You know, how do we cherish silence using something that actually breaks the silence? in order to help us cherish it. So that irony is never very far from us. But then, you know, just a lot of amazing moments of grace have emerged. I, you know, we had, um, I, I think they were released back in June, we had episodes featuring the folk musician Carrie Newcomer. So we talked about the relationship between silence and music. You know, and one of the things she said about being a musician, she said music is so ephemeral. Obviously, you know, you can record it. But the actual performance, you know, when you get up in front of an audience, she said, you know, I just, I just share my breath with people. And it's through my breath that I share my singing voice and that I share my lyrics. And it was just this lovely moment of recognition that, that as a musician, she understood that silence was part of everything she did. That is so fascinating. Thank you for telling my listeners a little bit about that, and I just want to encourage them to check out your podcast, Encountering Silence. Carl McCollman, it is such a delight to have you back on the show. Thank you for being with us again today, and congratulations on your new book, Unteachable Lessons. I just found it to be so moving, and I really enjoyed reading it, and I know that my listeners will too. Thank you, David. It's really just been a joy to have this conversation. We've been speaking today with Carl McCollman. He's the author of several books, including Befriending Silence, The Big Book of Christian Mysticism, and Answering the Contemplative Call. He lives near Atlanta, Georgia, where he's a member of the Lay Cistercians of Our Lady of the Holy Spirit, a contemplative community under the spiritual guidance of Trappist monks. We've been speaking today about his recent book, Unteachable Lessons, Why Wisdom Can't Be Taught and Why That's Okay. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.